well, crammed shoulder to shoulder in a 20-foot by 20-foot roped square stood policemen and reporters and trainers. Steve Ellis just concluded remarks with Joe Lewis. They stood ringside. Joe went off to locate Sonny. Sonny was the unfortunate recipient of a seventh-round TKO. Steve interviewed Barney Felix, the referee. As he concludes his interview, in the background, in black and white, keep in mind the year is 1964, you see floating above the crowd, above the heads, standing in the rink, two hands, gloved hands, as though they're floating, about to land. And the man... The champ comes into view. Steve, the reporter, is essentially doubled over by the press of the crowd. There's this ecstatic celebration taking place. And as he turns to ask the champ a question, before he can even get out a word, the champ speaks. I am the greatest. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face, and I upset Sonny Liston and I just turned 22 years old, I must be the greatest. Well, the star of that night was Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali would go on to be one of the most significant athletes of the 20th century. And he wasn't shy about letting people know. He did, after all, receive the nickname, quote, the greatest. And he released a studio album entitled, I Am the Greatest. Now, We might roll our eyes or gasp. We chuckle a bit at his pride, maybe denouncing him for it. But I would contend that he said out loud what many a heart whispers. You see, pride is a root planted deep within the heart. Arguing with that assertion might just prove it. Someone once said that hubris is the gateway through which all other sins enter the soul. Someone observed that in the Bible there's ten different Hebrew words and two Greek words that all refer to pride. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. Well, we as believers, we loathe pride. We, we hate seeing it in others. We hate seeing it in ourselves. And I believe that our desire is to kill it, to demolish that gateway to take yet one more of its lives, and to humble ourselves before the Lord, and to achieve a greatness before God, a greatness that is outside of ourselves, a greatness defined by Jesus Christ. I believe that is the desire of the believer. And this morning, our Lord teaches us about greatness. Christ provides three prescriptions for greatness. Our message comes from Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We'll look at the first nine verses this morning. If you're just joining us, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going verse by verse, and we've concluded chapter 17. 
As we enter chapter 18, we're entering what is the fourth major sermon given by Jesus in his gospel. Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Matthew's recorded various events or miracles, even sermons by Jesus. He has five major sermons. You probably know the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular of those sermons. We saw that back in chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is the fourth sermon today. We'll see the fifth in a few months. It's Matthew chapter 24 and 25. That's the big one, the Olivet Discourse. Now, Jesus prophesies the future. Well, for now, let's read the first six verses, Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We'll begin this morning with the first three verses. What does it mean to be the greatest? That's the question we seek to answer. Well, greatness means change. Greatness means change. You cannot be great without changing. Verse 1 begins with a question. In fact, this is the big question of the morning. It is this question that launches us into the entire discussion. Jesus redefines greatness. He answers the question. He does that, but he does it in a way unexpected. Mark and Luke, other gospel authors, describe this scene. Luke records an argument. The disciples are arguing among themselves as to which one of them might be the greatest. Mark's gospel records the reply. Jesus questioned them, what were you discussing on the way? And then Matthew 18, verse 1, that whopper of a question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it Peter? My nickname is The Rock. Jesus invited me to walk on water. I was the one who volunteered to build tabernacles upon the mountain that day of the transfiguration. When I go fishing, I literally catch gold. Maybe it was John. I was the first disciple Jesus called. Besides Peter, last time Jesus spoke of stumbling blocks, he called you a stumbling block. Perhaps it was Matthew. There's lots of fishermen on this disciple team, but there's only one tax collector. Jesus saw something special in me. I am the greatest. Was it Simon the Zealot? After all, you can't teach passion. Or maybe Judas Iscariot. I mean, the money guy has major responsibilities. I don't exactly know how these arguments went. I wonder if they carry within them some kind of ambitious confidence. I mean, you know that feeling when you've just really nailed it. You know, you had the the job interview and you know you're the one getting the call. 
or you had the tryout and you know you're the one getting the part or making the team. There's no way it could be anyone else. I'm the guy, I'm the guy, I can, I can just feel it. Who will Jesus name? Who is the greatest? Jesus reaches down and he picks up a child. And this is a small child. The Greek word is used of a very young child, even an infant. Mark's gospel said that Jesus took him in his arms. Maybe it's that, that hip hole. Maybe he held them right here. Jesus set him down before the disciples. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine what that did to the room? What that did to this argument? What that did to these men? Jesus does not select any of them, but he points to a child. And his reply? Forget about the question. Forget about who's the greatest. He wants to know, are you even in the kingdom? You see, their question has made a statement. It's revealed some things about them, their hearts, their thinking. They have the wrong definition of greatness. They don't know what greatness entails. They're preoccupied with themselves, not others. And Jesus says to them, you need to be converted. You need to change. You need to turn around. You're going in the wrong direction and change must take place. Now, there's two different views as to what Jesus means in verse 3. The first concerns conversion. Conversion being the response of a person who hears the gospel of Jesus. We might talk about conversion in the sense of coming to salvation or saving faith. This is necessary to enter heaven. Uh, One example of this would be um, the Philippian jailer. Uh, This jailer who was guarding a prison in Philippi. Paul and Silas are imprisoned there. An earthquake occurs and opens up the cells. And this jailer would be killed if any prisoners escaped. And he calls out to, to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul goes on to preach the gospel to him and to his household. What must I do to be saved from the penalty of my sins? Well, Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's a particular kind of conversion. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and you'll be saved from the penalty of sin. Well, the jailer and his household believed, they experienced conversion. Now, the second view in verse 3 concerns those who are already converted. We call these people disciples or Christians. It says that Jesus is calling them to make changes in their lives, to become more like him. Uh, And the context is to become more humble, to put others before yourself. And we understand this. Even though we're Christians, we don't, we don't automatically become perfect or, or sinless. We don't have all this figured out. That's why the word of Christ is important to us, to have it repeated or, or reread again and again and again. 
And in this way, Jesus is calling us to, to change, to change from sinful behavior that might reside in our lives. One example from the Bible of this would be Peter. The book of Acts records Peter used by God in significant ways. But then the book of Galatians records a, a different story. Over there, Paul rebukes Peter for his sin. Peter is causing others to stumble by reverting to old ways of doing things, Old Testament rules. This doesn't mean that he, he's no longer God's child, but because he was, he needed to change. He needed that type of conversion. It's a call to change. Well, I think we need to be aiming at both of these changes. Conversion for certain, where we come to believe that Jesus has died for our sins and trusting in him for eternal life. That's a conversion absolutely we need. But we also need the ongoing change. The Bible calls that sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, responding to the word of God, looking like Christ. Greatness means change. Well, secondly, greatness means childlikeness. This is verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord continues redefining greatness. We might say he's correcting the word. And once again, he points to this child. To be great, one must humble himself, humble herself, to be like a child. Uh, to be humble means to be low, to be meek, to be modest. Humility is not some form of self-shaming. It doesn't mean you need to demean yourself. Dissatisfaction with who you are, that's not humility. I like how Sinclair Ferguson says it, quote, humility is not simply feeling small and useless like an inferiority complex. It's sensing how great and glorious God is and seeing myself in that light. To be humble is to be like Jesus. Time and again, the, the Bible gives us these wonderful pictures of the humility of Jesus Christ. He says of himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's an example of a humility that Christ bore. Paul writes of Jesus that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And John records the final meal together. Jesus poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Dirty, dusty feet. These are the feet of the disciples who followed Jesus. These are the feet of disciples who went in wayward directions as they attempted to follow Jesus. These are the feet of men who asked questions about greatness. And Jesus washed 22 of them. Judas had departed. You see, Jesus modeled humility. And in today's particular passage, our superior example, capital S, capital E, he points to a child. And he says, greatness belongs to all 
who humble themselves like a child. But that begs the question, what is it about a child? What is it about a child that we are to, to imitate or how, how are we to be like a child? Uh, certainly there are some things that we would not mimic. Uh, children tend to know less than adults. Some of you may say, well, you don't know the adults. I know, I'll give you that. Children tend to be less focused. Children tend to be foolish. Children are childish. They tend to argue about things like, oh, I don't know who is the greatest. But there is much to imitate. Children are dependent. And just as children depend on on a parent for all things, God our Father would invite us to depend upon him. Indeed, command us to depend upon him for all things. Children are teachable. Children are sponges who are always learning. They're learning even if we're not trying to teach them. Children are needy. Just as parents wish to meet the needs of their child, so too does God our Father seek to meet our needs. But I think in some ways, this is still speculation. These ways aren't wrong. It's not untrue. There's even more to say. But what does the Bible say? What does the text say? In verse 4, we see humility. Humility would be the focus. Humility would be the leading answer to that question. To become like children is to humble ourselves as a child. But that's not all. Look ahead at verse 6. Jesus speaks of these little ones who believe in me. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must have the humble trust of a child. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must have a humble trust like a child. In the same way that children trust, so too was we trust God. Little children believe in their parents. Little children believe 100%. Our son, Lucas, is 11 months now. I can set any kind of food before him. He will eat it every time. He's completely trusting. A child gets in the car. You remember riding in the backseat of a car when you're young? Remember when the cars were much more gigantic and metal? Boy, it was huge back there. You can't see where you're going, but you trust you're going to get there. I also know that for every dirty diaper, a child trusts that a clean one is coming. But what's most amazing about this is that for children, this is instinct. This is instinctive. They don't need to be trained. They don't need to be taught to trust. They know to do this. And what a great goal for you and I as believers, as, as children of God, to have that goal, to make trust instinct, that it be instinctive to who we are, that we are automatically trusting God. Boy, what greatness, as Jesus defines it. You see, greatness means a, a childlikeness. And greatness means change. And thirdly, greatness means charity. Greatness means charity. We see this in verses 5 through 9. 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. A shift is taking place in verse 5. A shift in the direction that this passage, indeed this chapter, is about to go. Matthew 18, generally as a whole, is, is looking toward others. How the church community is to live and, and interact with one another. And we're going to see this more clearly as we get into the rest of the chapter. Now, we just learned in the first few verses that we are to become like children. Now we learn how to treat brothers and sisters in Christ, other children who belong to God. And I believe it's possible that we could exercise what we've learned on an island. We can exercise humility on an island, but it's in the metropolis that our true proving ground takes place. In other words, we need other people to practice humility. And here, that humility is looking out for others, for little ones, for God's people. We are to look out for other Christians trying to obey Jesus. Now, verse 5 is an encouragement. We learn there that if we receive other believers, it's as though we receive Christ himself. But verse 6 is a warning. And the rest of today's passage flows from this warning. Do not be a stumbling block. Stumble is the verb. Stumbling block is the noun. It's one word in the Greek. Taken together, these words appear six times in five verses. Jesus is serious about this. How serious? It would be better for you to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. A millstone was used to grind grain. It was held in your hand. You could use it in your house. There were two different kinds of millstones that were of this design. The millstone Jesus speaks of is not that. This millstone is a large millstone. You need an animal, a donkey, or an ox to move it. Grain would be fed through the middle of this millstone, so there was a hole. Jesus speaks of a rope being fed through that hole, and that rope placed around the neck of a man. Now, there'd be no question of fate once this man was taken to the deepest fate, the deepest depths of the ocean. In fact, the Greek word for depths refers to open seas. Jesus envisions not some shoreline drowning, but taking them out in the middle of an ocean and dropping them. He says this type of death is preferable to causing others to stumble. 
Why is Jesus so serious? Because he hates sin. God declares his hatred of sin 16 times in the Old Testament. God says, I hate sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 lists six different sins. Sin stands in opposition to all that God is. God is holy, and God is pure, and God is righteous. And God calls his people to be the same. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And believer, God is jealous for you. God is jealous for your holiness with a a pure jealousy. God's jealousy is not some kind of pettiness or or greediness. The closest thing I could think of might be for for a a wife for a husband or a husband for the wife. It's that type of jealousy. Uh, He belongs to me or she belongs to me. You see, God has set his people apart for holiness. And Jesus describes the fate of those who would seek to pollute his people or corrupt his people. He acknowledges that that stumbling blocks happen. We understand this. We we live in a fallen world. We know that God will one day judge impartially the, the, the world and their fallenness and the corruption they've brought. But Jesus says, may that never come through us. May we not be that source of temptation for a brother or a sister in Christ. He tells us how to avoid this, how to be charitable toward other believers. It's a radical approach to sin, to our sin, to to my sin. The best way to avoid causing others to sin is to crucify that sin within your own heart. And that's what he's saying in verses 8 and verse 9. I mean, if he became aggressive with his language in verse 7, that picture of a millstone and drowning, he he did not dial it down in verses 8 and 9. In fact, Jesus taught this before. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Now, the context there dealt primarily with adultery and with lust. Here he speaks of, of sin more generally. In particular, he speaks of, of eliminating sin so we don't influence others. But the command here is given to believers. His command is given to each of us as we watch our own soul. But notice then, it's also for the sake of other people. As mentioned in Matthew 18, this chapter is about to open up and and address how we do life together as a community of faith. But for now, how we deal with our sin, it says a great deal about our destiny. Verse 8, if if something we're doing with our hands, for example, or or some place that we're going, or our feet, for example, if they cause us to sin, or in verse 9, if something we view or encounter, if that causes us to sin, Jesus says, stop doing it. Don't do it anymore. He says it's better to enter life or or to go to heaven without those experiences or without those encounters than to go to hell because you kept pursuing them. Someone may object, well, I, I believe in Jesus, to which we must reply, good, then do verse eight and do verse nine. 
Christians deal radically with their sin because of the charge to look out for a brother and look out for a sister, to not cause another to stumble, to in fact enter heaven fully pursuing holiness ourselves. We possess a significant concern, or ought to, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now just imagine for a moment then, tonight, in your home, imagine it's 2 a.m. An intruder enters your home. An intruder who's a particularly wicked person maybe a professional, quite a force to be reckoned with. You know the intruder's in your home somewhere. You're not quite sure where. It's dark. You hear him. Imagine then as well that you are the only person between that intruder and your spouse or that intruder and your child. What would you do? Or to what extent would you go to protect, or to safeguard. Jesus loves every member of his family. And he loves you more than you can comprehend. And he calls each of us to go to radical lengths to protect one another. In this passage, he calls us to take action against anything traipsing around in the darkness of our hearts to eliminate that, to protect each other. And this radical language that Jesus uses, it's a call to you and I to grant sin no quarter in our hearts, to not coddle it, but to root it out and to crucify it and to mortify it and to kill it. This is a mark of true greatness, killing sin in our lives out of a love for Christ and out of a love for one another. And to be great also means that you and I, we, we won't remain the same, that, that we're going to change. To be great means also that we must be humble. A simple childlike trust in God is the mark of greatness. I want you to achieve greatness. In preparing for today, I, I read somewhere that in this passage, Jesus doesn't condemn greatness. It's an interesting observation. You might think after verse 1, Jesus would say, hold on, guys. Quit talking about greatness. Don't concern yourselves with that. But he doesn't. He gives us a proper definition of greatness. We might even say that he wants us to be great because he goes on to tell us how to do it. To answer the question, who is the greatest? Well, you are and you are. If you hear the word of the Lord this morning and you do it, you don't even need to win a boxing match to be great. Christ prescribes all we need to be great. And the same Jesus who's given us this task gives us the grace we need to do what he demands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We are thankful to be children of your Father. Thank you for the clarity 
Thank you for the vision you've given us. You've told us what greatness means and what it entails. I pray for grace in our lives, Lord, that we would be great according to your word. You would help us to be humble and toward one another. You give us eyes to see sin in our lives and a heart to repent and turn from it. Father, give us a, a childlike trust in you that you will supply all that we need and the grace to be great as your son has defined it. We love you and pray these things in his name. Amen.